Welcome to this edition of the IWI's CFITrainer.net podcast. From 2010 through 2014, the Enid, Oklahoma Fire Department caseload included 17 fires that remained under investigation or had an undetermined fire cause. An investigation determined that one factor tied all of these fires together. They were all in close proximity to the residence of a man named Martin Painter, who had previous arson convictions. But there was no clear evidence that he had set those fires. Then on May 11, 2014, a fire in a vacant building owned by the city of Enid was determined to be incendiary. Surveillance video identified Mr. Painter in the area around the time of the fire. Through a team approach and sustained effort, Mr. Painter was brought to justice. Their efforts on this case earned Enid Fire Department investigators Ken Helms, Bill Moss, Mike Schatz, and Kevin Winter the 2016 IAAI Fire Investigator of the Year Award. Today, Fire Marshal Ken Helms is with us to discuss this case. Fire Marshal Helms, welcome to the podcast and congratulations on the award. Well, thank you very much. Good morning. Good morning. So let's go back in time a little bit and uh, talk about when you first realized that what seemed like unrelated cases were a concentration of fires occurring near a home of one individual. How did, how did you make that connection? Well, we had... Um we had a series of fires in a general area of town that we'd kind of been looking at for a while. Uh, we were aware of Mr. Painter for several years that he had had a previous arson conviction, and we had kind of been keeping an eye on him and checking on him after some of these fire events, but uh, we, we didn't have any direct evidence connecting him to any of the fires and couldn't place him directly at the scenes of those fires. Tell me about the techniques you used during the investigation to tie these seemingly unrelated fires together. Well, I use a, a variety of uh, GIS softwares. Our, our city uses uh, GIS technology for, of course, water lines and hydrants and things like that. So I was able to access some of that information. And also a mapping program called, called MARPLOT that's available from the EPA that we use for hazardous materials responses. And I was able to plot the locations of a number of fires that we'd had over a period of time. Uh, on that map and then look at them in relation to Mr. Painter's home address. Uh, we identified, I think, 17 fires that uh, were similar in nature, vacant, unsecured structures, the fires occurred during the daytime that were within a one-mile radius of his home address. So I'm guessing you had a real good idea what was going on, and this might be premature, but Let's talk about why you weren't able to arrest Mr. Painter before the 424 South Grand Avenue fire. We, we didn't have any direct evidence that he was related to those fires. Uh, we did have some witnesses that had seen someone that loosely fit his description in the area prior to the fire. And we did question him uh, after a couple of those uh, fires, uh, but we weren't able to place him at that location and didn't have any physical evidence to tie him to that location. So we, we were unsuccessful in, in gathering enough evidence to actually arrest him or charge him with anything. And I would guess that that is pretty typical of a lot of cases like this. It is, and it's, it's very frustrating. There are many times that it feels like we, we have a pretty good idea who's responsible for a fire, but without any direct evidence, it's pretty hard to tie them to it. Um, you know, we realize that a lot of times the physical evidence that ties a particular person to a fire, we may know that the fire was intentionally set. Uh, the, the, the fire evidence may tell us that, but it doesn't tell us who's responsible for it many times. 
And so then it falls to good interviews and interrogations and asking questions of the right witnesses uh, to gather enough information to tie that to a particular suspect. So how did you proceed with investigating the new cases as they occurred, given that you knew that Mr. Painter might be involved? Well, we, we just continued to gather what information we could with each of those fires and interview as many parties as we could. Uh, as I mentioned, a lot of these occurred um, during the daytime hours, but they were vacant, unsecured structures where uh, typically there was good access to them from the back of the house or through an alley where, where someone wouldn't be seen very easily. They were also in neighborhoods that, that there wasn't a lot of uh, foot traffic around during that particular time of the day. Uh, people are gone to work, so there were limited numbers of witnesses. Uh, but we just tried to gather as much information as we could. And where we did have any kind of a statement from someone that described uh, anyone in the area that didn't belong or whatever, we just tried to document that as carefully as we could. So we had that information to include in the investigations later on. Once again, just a, a sign of a, a good investigation that sometimes takes time. <laughs> it's, it's, it's somewhat tedious from time to time. I can imagine. So can you describe the break in the case for our audience? Well, the break in the case was the warehouse fire that I mentioned, which was um, May 11th of 2014. It was the vacant warehouse structure. And the real break for us was the video surveillance. We had two adjacent properties that both had video cameras, one of both of which actually had an individual camera that faced the property where the fire occurred. And so we were able to uh, spot an individual on those surveillance tapes uh, as he approached the building, walk around the corner of the building. He, he lingered around the building and, and walked past the face of the building and then back around to the other corner a couple of times. And then as he disappears around the corner of the building, about two and a half minutes later, the video shows the flames uh, inside the front window of the structure. So once we identified him, then we were able to question him more carefully and determine that, that it was actually him in the scene. So. So you certainly had somebody that you knew was an interested audience, but how did you classify the investigation as incendiary? Or I should say, how did you classify that fire as incendiary? Well, in, in examining the fire scene, we determined we had multiple points of origin. We also we did uh, some testing for ignitable liquids, but because the warehouse had been a machine shop previously, um, there was a, a possibility that some ignitable liquids would have been remaining at the scene naturally. So... We didn't necessarily think it was a fire that, that involved an accelerant of any kind. Although uh, when Mr. Painter approached the building, he was carrying uh, a couple of bags that had uh, appeared to have some liquid jugs in them of some kind, like milk jugs in, in plastic bags. And when he walked away from the building, he didn't have those with him anymore. So we don't know if he actually used an accelerant or if he just ignited uh, ordinary combustibles that were on the scene. But we did have multiple points of origin within the structure, which to us is a pretty good indication that it's an intentionally set fire. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, I'm wondering, at this point, did you reach out for assistance from some other folks? Uh, we did. Um, we had attended some training through the um, Oklahoma chapter of the IAAI, and there's a, uh, an ATF agent, uh, Mr. Ashley Stevens, Special Agent Ashley Stevens, that we reached out to him to come and help us kind of review the case. Uh, he also participated in uh, some interviews with Mr. Painter with us. We we felt like we had something, uh, a pretty strong case building that he had set that particular fire, and we also believe that he may have been involved in a number of these other previous fires. So we didn't want to mess it up. We wanted to reach out and uh, and just have someone look over our shoulder a little bit and help us critique as 
we went through the process and try to make sure we had a good conviction on Mr. Painter. And your team sounds like they're very thorough, so I'm, I'm thinking that you had created a timeline. Could you talk a little bit about that? Timeline in re- relation to this individual fire or the series of fires? Uh, Mr. Painter's movements. Well, Mr. Painter's movements were determined somewhat by the video surveillance. You know, the, the, the video from the two different properties shows him as he approaches uh, the target property where the fire occurred. He lingers around, uh, one of them is a thrift store, the, one of the adjacent properties, and he lingered around it for a while. Then he crosses the street and goes to the the vacant structure that had the um, where the fire occurred and lingers around it, walks around the structure once or twice before finally entering the structure and setting the fire. So the timeline is, is pretty de- much determined by the timestamps on the videos as far as his activity right around the building. Makes total sense. I guess sometimes it's just right there. It's right in front of your face. It doesn't require a, a giant chalkboard and uh, post-its to... <laughs> Not really. With technology. And as a matter of fact, when we had um, went to the thrift store to obtain their video or to just find out if they had video that might be useful to us, Mike Schatz, uh, one of my assistants, had gone to do that. And he determined, yes, there is something there. He was going to go back with a thumb drive to actually retrieve that later. But he took a screenshot uh, with his cell phone as he was reviewing that. And then as he was leaving their property, he saw someone on the adjacent railroad tracks in the immediate area. And it was just kind of curious, hey, maybe the guy walks here frequently, maybe he's seen something. So we approached him to ask if he had ever seen this individual that he had in his uh, screenshot from the video surveillance. And so he approached and said, hey, you know, can I speak with you for a minute? And he said, sure. But uh, have you ever seen this guy around? And the guy looks at him and says, well, yeah, that's me. And this was Martin Painter. This was our suspect. <laughs> he pretty much he was there the following day identified himself for us. <laughs> Amazing. And, uh, and Mike Schatz was, was fairly new to my division at the time, and he wasn't familiar with, uh, with Mr. Painter or our history with him up to that point. But when he contacted us and said, well, hey, I think I've got your suspect, and his name's Martin Painter, we all kind of, our jaws dropped a little bit like, oh, great, now we finally have something on Mr. Painter. It says something about taking a picture from a surveillance piece and walking up to another person and not knowing... It's them. I mean, was it? It just wasn't that clear, I guess. No, it really wasn't. And and as he saw this man in the area, he was he was walking away from him. So he just back to him when he first called out to him and approached him. And he he was dressed differently, you know, in the in the surveillance video. He's wearing shorts and flip flops and a like a Hawaiian shirt. And then when he approached him the day after the fire, he's wearing jeans and a jacket and a baseball cap. And you know, although if you looked closely, you could tell it was the same guy. It just didn't occur to Mike that that he was looking at the guy that was in the screenshot. Yeah, and not to mention how often would that happen. Um. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, he, he fully wasn't expecting it. <laughs> so tell us about the arrest. Uh, well, eventually, we, we interviewed Mr. Painter several times, and eventually he, um, he did admit to us that he had gone inside the structure. Um, initially, he denied having anything to do with it, said it wasn't him in the video, and then you know, later he finally admitted that it was him in the video, and they did, they did enter the structure. Although the video doesn't show, you know, the, the opening or the door that was open for him to enter the structure is not seen in the video. It's at the wrong angle for that. So we never saw him enter. We just saw him walk around the corner in the direction of that open door. Uh, but eventually he admitted to us that he had entered the structure, which placed him in the structure at the time of the fire. Uh, we obtained a search warrant for his home. 
the, the only real product of that search was that we found a newspaper that was folded to a report about the fire and that it was being investigated as an arson. Uh, it was an article that occurred in, the, in our local newspaper two or three days after the fire had occurred um, that just talked about the fact that it was being investigated as an arson. And that, you know, at that time, the paper was several weeks old, and it was the only newspaper we found in his home at the time. So uh, it, it just kind of confirmed that he had an interest in the fire or the investigation of the fire, not really direct evidence of his involvement, but some circumstantial evidence anyway. Sure. Uh, but, but with with that and the video surveillance and his admission that he had been in the structure at the time of the fire, we prepared a, an affidavit of probable cause and submitted it to our DA. Eventually, they filed charges, and we were able to go place him under arrest. So what was the outcome? Well, the outcome was he pled guilty. Um, Mr. Painter has been in and out of prison for all of his adult life. From researching his background, he's eventually pled guilty to everything he's ever been charged with. So he pled guilty to this as well. I believe he's uh, uh, with the Department of Corrections for the state of Oklahoma for the next eight years, I believe it is. Well, it's good to know he's away for a while. Well, and our, our little rash of fires in that general area has seems to have ceased. So we're, we're pretty happy we were able to um, uh, interrupt his behavior and maybe have a safer community because of it. So. And that is a beautiful thing. So I'm thinking now about the fact that this year, the Fire Investigator of the Year Award went to a group of people which means uh, I'd like to ask you a little bit about the team approach, and it seems like it was real important in this case. Could you talk about what that concept means at, at, at your fire department? Well, our, we're, we're very fortunate uh, here in the city of Enid that um, the Fire Prevention Division gets great support from our fire chief. Uh, we have a good relationship with him, and, and I have the staffing in my division that uh, gives me an opportunity to be fairly aggressive about uh, investigating arsons. Uh, a lot of departments, because the fire marshal's office, the fire prevention division has so many different responsibilities, it's hard to focus on investigations with the attention that they really deserve sometimes. But I'm fortunate I have three full-time assistants. Uh, we all are certified law enforcement officers. One of, one of my assistants, Bill Moss, is a former police officer, so he brings a, a little bit more police and, and investigative experience to the table for us. Uh, but we've all attended uh, the National Fire Academy. We've all taken numerous courses on fire and arson investigations. And we're, the, the, my three assistants have a rotation schedule amongst the three of them for responding to fires after hours. Uh, they're called in and receive overtime pay for that. And if they need any assistance, if it's a significant enough incident where they need someone else there, maybe while one's examining the fire scene, one can be interviewing occupants or witnesses and that sort of thing. They call for an additional person to come and help. Many times that's that's me. Um, and so we're, we're able to put the manpower uh, where it needs to be to, uh, to focus on fire investigations where we can. That's good to hear. I mean, in a lot of cities, it's very difficult. I hear a lot of stories about one person having to do the job. That's very often the case, and it's been that way here in the past. And and once I, when I became the fire marshal, we we kind of reorganized things a little bit, and I had good support from our chief to uh, rearrange our staffing a little bit so that we have the opportunity to do a better job with it now than we probably ever have in the past. Um, they've also been very generous with our uh, training budget. 
to get everyone trained properly. Everyone's attended our uh, law enforcement academy. Uh, as I mentioned, the, the um, fire investigation courses at the National Fire Academy, uh, as well as some interviews and interrogations. We're all working towards our CFI. Uh, none of us have taken that certification yet, but we're we're getting pretty close. We we just feel like um, investigating fires and intervening when we do have an intentionally set fire and trying to prosecute those effectively is is a key to a safer community. So we're fortunate to be able to, to work towards that. I'm sure the city's grateful for your work. So not to be pushy, but are you guys all doing your CFI trainer modules? We are. We, we stay with CFI trainer pretty, pretty heavily. Um, Mike Schatz, my... Uh, the newest guy in my division, when he first came in here, he was he was very aggressive with it, and within a pretty short time, he'd taken every module that you'd offered, and I think he's still up to date. I think he's uh, he's maintained that, so he's ahead of the rest of us, actually. Well, good for him. We've got more content coming out. I think you guys will like it. Um, well, we um, you know we we're we're members of the the state chapter um, and attend a lot of the training conferences that we have here every year. We look at. Uh, uh, the IAAI and CFI trainer as great resources for us. We never, ever expected that we would uh, be recognized the way we have with the, the Investigator of the Year Award, first from the state chapter and then from, from the international. But uh, we're we're very grateful for that. And, and we feel like a lot of that was because we asked for help and reached out uh, for assistance to the right person at the right time. Uh, Mr. Stevens, uh, Special Agent Stevens with the ATF, is on the board of the Ah, okay. I think that's that's where our nomination came from originally. So we're we're grateful to him for his assistance and for that nomination. Yeah. So so speaking of that, I I just have a couple more questions. I mean, how was it working with the ATF, to, um, setting up the cooperation with the ATF on an investigation? I was, you know, I, I've always been impressed with um, uh, the agents that have been teaching many of the classes that we've attended. There there are usually ATF agents involved at the National Fire Academy. Uh, Mr. Stevens has been involved in our uh, state chapter here for a number of years, and and they've always made it clear when we've been to these classes: if you guys need anything, need any assistance, please give us a call. We're not uh, we're not going to jump in and take over your case. We just want to provide assistance where we can. And when we this one time when we did, uh, that's exactly how it happened. They were more than willing to come and help us out. They came uh, very very promptly, came over a couple of different times and assisted us with uh, uh, looking through the fire scene itself and interviewing Mr. Painter. Uh, they were just a tremendous assistance to us, and we're, we're very thankful for that. That's great to hear. I hear that across the country. Um, I guess before we wrap up, anything that you would like to share with the listeners? I mean, there's quite a few people who are fire investigators from around the country that you could have an opportunity to share. Any other thoughts? Well, I, I would just say that, uh, you know, the, the job is very frustrating sometimes. Uh, fire prevention is the kind of thing that your your success is usually measured by your uh, a decrease in your failure rate. You know, <laughs> yeah. if you have fewer fires, fewer unexplained fires, um, you know you you feel like you're doing some good. But it's really hard on a day to day basis to really feel like you're being effective and that you are. You never know that you've prevented a fire. You only know about the ones that you failed to prevent. Uh, but in this particular case, we feel like it was uh, pretty rewarding to know that uh, getting Mr. Painter off the street, getting him out of our community, and interrupting his behavior has given us a safer community. So we take a lot of satisfaction from that. And, 
and those those moments of satisfaction um, kind of come few and far between where you really get to recognize that. But uh, it's certainly worth the effort. Well, I appreciate you sharing the story of uh, perseverance, at least. Um, <laughs> so, Fire Marshal, thanks very much uh, for sharing your story with us here at, at CFI Trainer, and uh, I hope you have a good holiday. Well, you too. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you, sir. To all of you who have assisted us here at CFITrainer.net with information and interviews on the podcast, I just wanted to say thank you very much. We're also listening to what you have to say out there at CFITrainer.net. We did do a poll and asked people what they thought about the podcast and what kind of information they were most interested in. One of the number one answers, or definitely the number one answer, was case studies. So we're going to do that. Um, This was sort of a case study to start out with, but we normally do do the Fire Investigator of the Year. We're also coming up next month with a uh, podcast about the Seaside Heights fire in New Jersey. So we'll be doing a case study about that fire that happened along the boardwalk. So besides adding case studies to the CFITrainer.net podcast, we're also going to change the format a little bit and start to do some things that folks have also asked for. Uh, And that's to learn a little bit more about what's going on in the IWI whether it relates to certifications or designations or training opportunities that are out there. We'll also learn a little bit about partnerships and the uh, things that are going on on the national, international level by speaking to Deborah Keeler, the executive director of the IWI. So next month, we will have new information for you about what's going on in the IWI, again, with designations, certifications, training, membership opportunities, partnerships, and that will be held uh, pretty much as a phone call where I'll just be uh, talking to the different folks who actually do the work. I look forward to that. Thanks to all of you for listening. Stay safe out there. For the IAAI and CFITrainer.net, I'm Rod Ammon.